Hello and welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind and today's show is the second part to our testicular cancer extravaganza. Last time we talked about the two main or most commonly used treatments in the treatment of testicular cancer that is single agent AUC7 carboplatin which is a big dose no matter how you cut it as well as the combination of bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. But that knowledge is nothing without the knowledge of how to use it. So today, Josh and I are going to go through how to risk stratify a testicular cancer and which treatment you should use. Josh, how are you doing first off? Michael, after some small technical issues today, I think we're off to a raging start. I'm overlooking Bondi Beach at the moment and I could not be happier. He's already in rearing go to talk about testicles and their cancers. And Bondi Beach. And Bondi Beach. <laughs> Same thing. Really. Anyway, <laughs> so, so how, how about we start off with some information on how to risk stratify cancer. You've got a patient in front of you and you're trying, you're oscillating between two separate treatments or treatment and surveillance. Josh, tell us how to differentiate between a high-risk and a low-risk testicular cancer. This is one of the, the biggest parts, isn't it, Michael? It's about risk stratification. It's like any cancer, but testicular cancer does it maybe a little bit more defined and within parameters than others. So they risk stratify based on the AJCC 7th tumor classification of the TNM. So that's tumor lymph nodes and metastases and tumor markers, which is the little S that comes after it. So in advanced disease, supplemented by risk stratification from the IGCCCG. And if you're interested in what that stands for, that's the International Germ Cell Cancer Collaborative I did not come up with that name. I feel like they could have put a few more C's and G's into that acronym there. Yes, but the, the thing about this group, so the is divided... Right. It's divided into the good, intermediate, and poor risk disease. Of note, when you look at a tumour marker, when you're looking for classification, it will always be, as of day one, cycle one of chemotherapy but ultimately you're going to risk stratify beforehand so that's where you're going to get that tumor marker from and it does make things easier to have this sort of stratification at your fingertips because otherwise you're just sort of going by by feels and vibes and that's not exactly the best way to uh, practice medicine is it josh not not in the 21st century but it is this the other nice thing about this is you can actually then go to your patient this is why i would do this this is the rationale this is what the up-to-date guidelines say so a good risk if there's any primary there's no metastatic disease outside of the lymph nodes and lungs and a normal alpha feta protein so no patients with good risk disease um and a post-op lactate dehydrogenase or ldh of greater than 2.5 times the upper limit of normal have similar outcomes to those of intermediate risk. And it's worth saying that this classification is for pure seminomas, uh, this first little part, and that is patients who on histopathology have 100% seminoma, no non-seminobitous components to the uh, original tumour. Exactly. And for intermediate risk, all of any primary, 
plus metastases outside of the lymph nodes and lungs and a normal alpha protein, and no classification really exists for poor risk seminomas. When you switch across to the non-seminoma risk stratification, and we'll put a link in the description because I don't think anyone's going to remember all of these, but good risk. There are a lot of numbers here. So many numbers. So testicular or retroperitoneal primary, no metastases outside of the lungs or lymph nodes, and an alpha feta protein that's less than 1,000 or a beta HCG of less than 5,000. Of note, you should never have an elevated beta HCG anyway as a man um, unless you're pregnant or an LDH of less than three times the upper limit of normal. The intermediate risk is testicular or retroperitoneal primary again, and no metastases outside of lungs or lymph nodes, and an alpha-feta protein between 1,000 and 10,000, or a beta-HCG between 5,000 and 50,000, or an LDH of three times 10 times the upper limit of normal. And a poor risk is... Have you got a mediastinal primary? Have you got metastases, mets to organs outside of the lungs, an alpha feta protein greater than 10,000, a beta HCG greater than 50,000, and an LDH of greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal. So I think if you remember what a poor risk is, you can probably figure out where the intermediate risk category would sit. And for a good risk, it's going to be relatively low for a metastatic non-seminoma. But in this day and age, you don't have to remember these numbers because you just need to know where to look. And the answer to that is in the description. <laughs> Michael, stage one disease. I know we covered this briefly yesterday, but why don't we sort of just give, give it a bit of a summary just to remind our listeners of how great stage one disease is. Stage one disease is great. I say to most people, uh, obviously not patients, but just people who who ask me, um, it's a bit of a weird conversation starter, but if you have to have a, a cancer and you are male, then testicular cancer is the one to have because the the outcomes are fantastic. So first for pure seminomas, the general recommendation is for surveillance. And we talked about this last week. We included the ANZUF guidelines in our episode description. This is the preference for compliant patients. It has the same overall survival benefit as adjuvant therapy. And while there is a higher rate of relapse, this doesn't affect overall survival. So the majority of relapses for patients with surveillance, and this is depending where you read, between 70 and 99% occur within the first two years. The majority were associated with good risk disease. That's that classification that Josh was just talking about. And the disease-specific survival at 15 years again, talking about how good stage one disease is, was 99.3%. And as we'll come to later, that's because you can still aggressively treat either surgically or with chemotherapy patients who have relapsed disease. Chemotherapy is an option for high-risk patients or patients who either by their own admission or not are unlikely or less likely to be compliant with what is a fairly intensive follow-up schedule. The risk factors for higher risk are a primary tumour size of greater than 4 centimetres or invasion of the RETI testis. In these patients, as mentioned last week, a single dose of carboplatin at AUC7 is the recommended treatment. It used to be that sometimes we would give radiotherapy, but that proved to be quite toxic. 
In terms of non-seminoma, as you've probably put together, even though it hasn't been explicitly stated, non-seminomas do tend to do worse than seminomas, but stage one disease, still quite good. Non-seminomas, we divide into low and high risk. And the risk factors for high-risk disease are lymphovascular invasion, a predominance of embryonal carcinoma, which is defined as embryonal carcinoma comprising the majority of of the surgical sample, or a T3 or T4 primary, so a big primary. A non-seminoma is classified as low risk when it doesn't have any of those features and classified as high risk when it has one or more of those features. So it's quite easy to have a quote-unquote high-risk stage one non-seminoma. Hey, Mikey, can I ask, in the the low-risk, do they ever do retroperitoneal lymph node dissections? Is that a thing these days? So I think it's very, very centre-dependent. Now, retroperitoneal lymph node dissections, or RPLNDs, are very site-specific and very surgeon-specific. You need to have a surgeon who has a good amount of experience, a good amount of expertise and confidence in order to do one properly. There is high risk of uh, leaving behind residual disease or complications such as Kyla societies. And I have seen that with uh, a very unfortunate young patient who went to a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. This was in the setting of of recurrence, but uh, ended up having major, major problems with recurrent Kyla societies, which is just lymph accumulating in his abdomen. So if you look on up to date, RPLND is mentioned, but I think practically you're much less likely to offer it up front for a patient when surveillance or uh, one to two cycles of BEP chemotherapy, which is, a, is another option. Carboplatin is not used in non-seminoma, so we use BEP one to two cycles. When that is so good, you're not necessarily going to offer RPLND up front. The risk of recurrence with surveillance is about 10 to 15%. But again, because BEP is so good as a treatment, the overall survival for these patients is very good. There is some debate as to whether one or two cycles of BEP is better. There was a study from the Swedish and Norwegian Testicular Cancer Project, or Svenoteca, which I think is just brilliant, and another one completed at the Princess Margaret Hospital that demonstrated the relapse rate with surveillance is about 50%, and this is pretty consistent across multiple studies. But for patients with high-risk disease, specifically in this case with LDI, they had 227 patients. The relapse rate with one cycle of BEP was 3%, versus 0% with two cycles. And they compared these to patients with surveillance who again had relapse risk around 42%. So if your patient is a bit antsy about chemotherapy, surveillance is an option, but there is the risk of relapse. So they do need to be aware of that. However, again, in this uh, Swenoteca study, the overall mortality rate for the entire cohort, regardless of what arm they were put into, was 1%. So again, Even if patients relapse, the treatments are good. Michael, it sounds like it's just a lymphoma or some really easily treatable uh, liquid, uh, um, you know, blood malignancy, really. Yeah, and testicular cancer does have a lot of those characteristics where it is very, very manageable up front and... Um, you know, uh, many of our patients don't even need to have chemotherapy at all. They just go into surveillance. Josh, why don't you talk about 
advanced disease for testicular cancer. As the bearer of the bad news, I'd be delighted to talk about advanced disease. Okay, so moving moving on to advanced disease, we're, th- we're talking about greater than or equal to stage 2 disease, Mikey. The recommendations will be the same regardless of the tumour type. Uh, it's determined by the risk stratification, which we spoke about at the start of the episode, for, so feel free to rewind and listen to that, but the link is also in the description if you are a visual learner. So good risk, you'll give BEP by 3. So EP, where you drop the bleomycin, is a reasonable alternative if there's concerns regarding pulmonary toxicity from bleomycin, though slightly less efficacious. They do not recommend substituting cisplatin with carboplatin because if you look at the data, it shows a 91% versus 77% one-year recurrence-free survival in one trial. So that that is, for a young patient cohort, which is still very curable, that's Probably not acceptable. I mean, unless they've got such significant issues that means cisplatin would not be an option, but then there's probably other health concerns we would need to chat about at that point in time. If you look at the evidence, there's the EORTC trial, which compared four BEP cycles versus four EP cycles. So again, we've dropped that bleomycin. And with the BEP, the rate was 95% versus 80 seven percent with ep when we look at complete response with this trial with the bep arm it was 95 percent and it was 87 percent in the ep arm there were fewer deaths in the bep arm interesting enough but it was not statistically significant to look at either arm anyway what we did see is that bep caused higher rates of pulmonary and neurological toxicity including two grade five events michael i always find it interesting about when they just describe grade five events what were these grade five events and you can't just say death like do you know what the um what the cause was yes they were two rate two episodes of pulmonary toxicity so pulmonary infiltration uh leading to respiratory failure and then if we, Michael, if we look at the intermediate and poor risk, again, you're giving BEP by four. So there is always that high risk of myelosuppression, fatigue, nausea, peripheral neuropathy and hearing loss. Treatment needs, or you should aim to give treatment at the full dose, regardless of the white cell count on day one of every cycle. We tolerate a much lower neutrophil count and white cell count in BEP than we would probably do with most other regimens. And they recommend to co-administer with GCSF, which is granulocyte colony stimulating formula. So pig filgrastim, uh, we use on Elaster as another equivalent as well. That's the other name. Um, or filgrastim. When you monitor response to treatment, look at the tumor markers. So day one of each cycle of chemotherapy. And of course, you've got the CT restaging, which you would do before for a baseline. And you want to do after completion of treatment to see how they respond you can consider a pet for patients with stage 2 or stage 3 seminoma with residual masses on ct that are greater than three centimeters so michael i think that kind of clarifies if you've got someone with metastatic disease right or advanced disease but what happens if they've got recurrence or relapse disease because that's another that's another game altogether like can you re-challenge with bleomycin? Like, what's what's the recommendation in that cohort of patients? That's a very good question, Josh, and a very good segue as usual. So 
The treatment of recurrent or relapsed disease is dependent on two factors. The first is the location of the relapse. If patients had baseline stage 1 disease, the retroperitoneum is the most common site of relapse. If there are metastases directly to the lungs or especially to uh, non-pulmonary viscera, such as the liver, uh, it is unlikely to represent a recurrence of testicular cancer and may warrant a rebiopsy. For patients with baseline metastatic disease, they typically present with a greater degree of disseminated disease upon relapse, so you can really have disease elsewhere. So for your advanced patients, as Josh was just mentioning, if they've got three or four uh, rounds of BEP, depending on their risk, and then they start popping up lesions in the liver or more concerningly in the brain or various other places, then that is much more likely to represent a relapse of their testicular disease. The second factor is timing. So the vast majority of patients, as mentioned, relapse within the first two years of diagnosis. Patients with chemo resistant uh, yolk sac or mature teratoma are the principal offenders for patients who have previously been treated with systemic therapy. Late relapses comprise around 3% of non-seminomatous germ cell tumours and only less than 2% of pure seminomas because, as we've established, seminomas are better. And we'll come to this a bit later in a bit more detail, but approximately 10 to 20% of late relapses of non-seminomatous germ cell tumours are mature teratomas. So it's common to have immature teratoma as part of a mixed non-seminoma, but these can develop into mature teratomas because they're fairly, or relatively speaking, slow-growing. They can be infrequently found as a quote-unquote late relapse, so that's a relapse after two years. The recommendations for treatment depend on the patient's previous exposure to chemotherapy. So for seminomas who have not had platinum, the standard therapy is three cycles of BEP for good risk and four cycles of BEP for intermediate or poor risk, just as you would if this was a de novo metastatic patient, because effectively they're usually chemotherapy naive. For cisplatin-naive non-seminomas, with normal tumour markers and limited peritoneal disease, this is where, if you have a surgeon who is confident in doing it, an RPLND might come into the picture. For patients with good risk non-seminoma who have had BEP previously, the treatment depends on how much BEP. So, you know, we're really, really uh, narrowing down the focus. So for patients who have had one cycle of BEP because they had a good risk disease, it is perfectly reasonable to have three cycles of BEP or four cycles of EP. Josh, why do you think you can't give four cycles of BEP in this situation? Michael, I love how you always put me on the spot with the really hard questions. My guess is that there's probably a threshold of how much bleomycin you want to give and anything above that would A, increase the risk of uh, toxicity or respiratory toxicity and secondarily, potentially, they might not be sensitive anymore to that bleomycin. How did that go? You went very well, Josh. Obviously, bleomycin, we're still talking uh, in the relapse stage about trying to cure this patient. The last thing you want to do is completely screw their lungs by giving them too much bleomycin. So uh, if they've had uh, 
one cycle of BEP in the initial treatment phase, you can give three BEP or four EP. If they have had two cycles of BEP, there's no point really giving two cycles of BEP again, so you can give them four cycles of EP to limit the cumulative dose of bleomycin. Wow, I was totally, I was totally on board. That was great. You were, you oh, thank were to- you for totally question. right. Enjoy this moment while it lasts. I do. It's so short, short-lived. So, for, so for intermediate or poor-risk non-seminomas, the focus shifts to ifosfamide-based chemotherapy. So, the re- regimens that we usually use in this setting are etoposide, ifosfamide, and cisplatin, or VIP or paclitaxel, ifosfamide, and cisplatin, or TIP, or TIP. And again, the risk here is not necessarily that you're going to overload the patients with BEP, but the bleomycin is probably the part of the chemotherapy regimen that is no longer working. So you need to substitute it for something else, in this case, ifosfamide. Here, RPLND can also be used. Uh, if they have intermediate or poor risk relapse for patients with disease limited to the retroperitoneum. Unfortunately, patients with relapse purely of to the le- retroperitoneum, if they have intermediate or poor risk disease, you might be lucky to catch them sort of in that phase. For patients who have had relapse after three or four cycles of BEP, obviously BEP really, really doesn't work. So you go straight for the VIP or TIP. There's absolutely no point and it's unsafe to give more than four cycles of bleomycin over the course of someone's life. The other option, and this is something that I've never seen and I don't think Josh has ever seen either, it's uh, I think an experimental regimen at this point, but is very high-dose chemotherapy with autologous bone marrow transplants. The way this is given is in two parts. Part one is paclitaxel and ifosfamide along with leukophoresis, so the storing or the removal and storage of a patient's bone marrow matter, followed by three cycles of carboplatin and etoposide. And after each one of these cycles, you need to give autologous bone marrow transplants. So this is only something that you would dream of using if a patient was incredibly, incredibly fit. This is something that I've only heard about using, so obviously requires a centre with a high degree of expertise and very, very fit patients. Initial evidence for this shows a treatment-related mortality of 10%, so 1 in 10 patients with this treatment are going to die. However, the long-term disease-free survival, disease-free survival over five years, is between 40 and 70%. And these are patients, coming back to our lymphoma metaphor, where for those patients who relapse or are refractory to treatment, it is very, very aggressive and very, very nasty. Special considerations for relapse disease. So for most patients with late relapse, you can treat with standard chemotherapy regimens, but if they do have a late relapse non-seminomatous germ cell tumour, it is possible to treat them with surgery. So this even applies to patients with relapsed disease in the lungs. Uh, I'm sure you have, Josh, but I've seen people undergo lobectomies or wedge resections of their lungs to remove uh, testicular recurrences because they were amenable to resection. Yes, great. 
Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. I, I, so I, I think the one thing to mention on that, Michael, is not all cancers is irrelevant or wise to cut out something in the lungs or I guess, you know, oligometastatic control, but there are certain cancers, I think like testicular cancer, where we know the cure rates and the treatments are so effective that you would want to do that. Yes. <laughs> For patients with non-seminomatous germ cell tumours, we mentioned this previously, but don't forget the possibility of metastatic mature teratoma. Um, for patients with potential relapse after chemotherapy or late relapse. Uh, This is particularly important for patients who have an enlarging mass and normal tumour markers, and these are usually managed with resection, as mentioned previously. Mature teratomas are usually chemotherapy-resistant. So you can throw all of the BEP, all of the EP, all of the VIP, the TIP at them. It is unlikely to work. So, Josh, that is a very convoluted and roundabout way of going through what to use and when in the management of testicular cancer from early stage to the very late experimental and relapse stage. I think you did pretty well with that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it was that bad. I think it's nice. One of the real challenges when you're starting out training or even as a specialist is like, what do you do when someone comes back with a recurrence or, you know, new metastatic disease? How does that differ to curative intent? And it's it's probably nice because it's not something that's really, I feel focused on that much in sort of the training I got, and so it's uh, it's it's nice to clear up, especially the stuff about how much bleomycin can you give. Why wouldn't you give it? You know, what are your other options? It's it's good. You did great. Absolutely, and I think that one thing to mention as well, particularly for our listeners who might be uh, at smaller hospitals or working in rural and regional centres, is that it is worth if you don't have a oncologist at your centre with expertise and a degree of comfort in treating testicular cancer, it is always worth potentially getting them to a centre that does. These are obviously quite complex cancers to treat. There is a lot of subtleties, lots of different things to look out for. So if you don't feel that you have the ex- that sort of expertise at your centre, this is something that was uh, impressed on me quite early in my training, it is always worth referring them to a center with that expertise exactly and always uh consider clinical trials for your um recurrent patients yeah because they're going to be young they're going to be generally pretty well and if you cure these guys where you do cause significant complications to their health you know these people you know it's sort of between what is it 18 and 44 it's kind of that reference range of being diagnosed or even younger now they have a long time to live with potentially long and life-limiting or quality-of-life-impacting toxicities. Absolutely. Josh, that wraps up our testicular duology. So why don't you tell our lovely listeners what they can expect next week? Yes, well, next week is not a duology, as Michael so eloquently put, but we are going to tackle another topic we haven't done recently, which is neuroendocrine tumours. These are vast. These can arise from multiple areas of the body and there are a lot of subtleties in treatment. So join us next week as we tackle what's going to be quite a a complex episode. We might even split it up depending how it goes. We do love the trilogy here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And of course, yeah, we'll see you there. We're a sucker for a series on this podcast. (laughs) We'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. <laughs>